This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where the legislature has a deal on the budget and will put an end to the 2020 session later this week, which is just as well because about the only thing people care about right now is the struggle to contain the spread of the coronavirus. As the number of cases in Florida passes the century mark, state officials have banned visitation in nursing homes and other facilities that have elderly residents and patients. The National Guard is also setting up a mobile facility in Broward County where people can go to be tested without going to the hospital. The governor is also expressing concerns about coronavirus being spread in Florida by people from other states. We're looking at you, New York. Ron DeSantis says it would be nice to screen passengers coming from trouble spots, but there's really nothing he can do about it. If you've been shopping for groceries lately, you've already noticed the run on disinfectant wipes, toilet paper, cleaning supplies. But the head of the state's emergency management office says those supplies are being replaced every day and you should stock up if you haven't already. The legislature was supposed to wrap up its work by midnight Friday. Of course, that did not happen. So lawmakers voted to extend the session for one week and approve a new budget. But they're not in the Capitol today or tomorrow. However, they will return Wednesday. On the Sunrise interview, we'll talk with Senator Jeff Brandis about the budget, coronavirus, sentencing reform, and a cap on the potency of medical marijuana. We'll also have your daily calendar of political events and check in with Florida Man, who wants to fight the spread of coronavirus by deliberately infecting first responders. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Monday, March 16th. Good news for every grandkid who dreads that monthly visit to the nursing home. The state is ordering them to steer clear. Governor Ron DeSantis says the elderly residents in those facilities have to be protected from coronavirus, and the best way to do that is to isolate them from the public. I'm directing Director Moskowitz to extend the current visiting restriction for nursing homes, ALFs, and other facilities that cater to the elderly and medically frail to all visitors for the next 30 days. So this is consistent with the guidance just put out uh, by CMS. Uh, There will, of course, be exceptions made for compassionate visitation, which is also consistent with CMS's guidance. Um, And ACA is going to be reaching out to all the affected facilities to ensure they have clear direction. Um, At the end of the day, this is a virus that does not threaten all segments of our society equally. Uh, The folks who are most at risk for this are folks who are elderly, frail, or have a serious underlying medical condition. So so we want to do all we can uh, to prevent this virus from affecting those communities who are at most at risk from it. Agency for Healthcare Administration Secretary Mary Mayhew says limiting visitation is the best way to protect the people in elder care facilities. This infection is highly transmissible. And for those over the age of 70 in our nursing facilities and our assisted living facilities and other residential programs, it can be highly deadly. That is why we are taking every step possible to protect our most vulnerable. Now is no time for individuals to be angry and frustrated about what patient gets transferred and what patient gets admitted. We need to be supporting hospitals and nursing facilities so that they can fulfill their role. We can't let this infection into a facility for our elderly, into our long-term care residential programs. We have been working and looking at ways in which through the governor's emergency order to support hospitals that may need to stand up space that has been vacant or to use buildings that have been previously licensed for inpatient use to expedite that process. 
The ban on visitation will have an impact on tomorrow's Florida primary because some of those elder care facilities had been designated as official voting sites. Secretary of State Laura Lee says local elections officials will be opening alternative sites. Voting is underway for Tuesday's presidential preference primary. Under Florida law, voters have several options uh, under which they may cast their ballots. Early voting is still going on, as is vote by mail, and of course there is voting available on election day. Earlier this week, we announced that precinct locations that uh, were located at assisting, assisted living facilities uh, and other facilities housing our most vulnerable uh, would be closed to the outside community. This has resulted in some changes to local voting precincts, which are being managed by the supervisors of elections in each of Florida's counties. The Department of State is in constant communication with the supervisors of election to ensure that uh, we are aware of any changes that are occurring and that they are receiving any support that they might need from the state. Uh, voters who are interested in determining uh, where their precinct is located or any other information about Election Day should check their local supervisor of elections website. That is and has always been the best source of information for the very most up-to-date information for Florida voters. Voters who have questions about options for voting or how they may cast their ballot uh, can contact our voter assistance hotline at the Department of State which will remain open from now through the close of the polls on Tuesday. That voter assistance hotline number is 1-866-308-6739. The number of confirmed cases of coronavirus in Florida hit 122 on Sunday, including four fatalities. And Governor Ron DeSantis says those numbers will be going up. Broward is the hot spot in Florida, so the governor says the National Guard will be setting up a portable facility where people can drive in and get tested a drive-through uh, testing operation. Uh, we already have 170 plus guardsmen in Broward County. We'll have several hundred more. Um, and the idea is because we've had more cases in Broward uh, than anywhere else, you know, we wanna be able to, uh, to supplement the healthcare system there. So we really thank uh, Memorial for, for wanting to partner. Uh, we think we're gonna have uh, a way to do this successfully. Um, I will say though that this has been tried in some other states, and uh, I know Colorado tried it. They had to shut it down. There have been problems in some of the other ways. So we want to do it in a way um, that's going to make an impact. Uh, as Dr. Fauci just said in the press briefing, uh, this is going to be a convenient way for a limited subset of the population to be tested. We're going to have that, uh, um, you know, that firm guidance come out when, uh, when these things open up. Uh, but clearly the folks who are elderly that have symptoms, um, that have an underlying medical condition, uh, we want to have the easiest way possible for them to test um, and then if need be to, to get treatment or to self-isolate. And of course, all of these COVID-19 tests uh, will be free to the patient. The state also has a portable field hospital that can be set up in short order, but the Division of Emergency Management is holding off for now, waiting to see where it would do the most good. The feds have imposed a new travel ban on visitors from Europe, Great Britain, and Ireland, but the governor is just as concerned about domestic flights. Cutting off the flights from Europe and then adding Ireland and Great Britain, I think, is a benefit right now for Florida because we had a number of cases from Ireland recently, and to not have it being brought in, um, you know, it's one thing to guard against its spread, and if you have a pocket of community spread, you know, uh, surging resources there or, or taking other mitigation measures there, when we constantly have it being brought in, 
it makes it more difficult. And so I'm glad that the president did that. I think the administration needs to look at domestic flights from certain areas where you have outbreaks. Um, and obviously that involves a lot of things with the economy and everything, but I just think what we're seeing here um, is we're seeing cases now where people clearly would have acquired it somewhere else in the United States, brought it here. And I think New York, given Florida's relationship with people and our population's relationship to people from New York, you, know, you just have a lot of interaction. And so uh, the question is, if these measures are succeeding, um, but then you still have more being brought in, it just makes it much more difficult to be able uh, to, to contain it. Florida Surgeon General Scott Rivkes is asking these domestic travelers to isolate themselves once they arrive in Florida. We are also now starting to see individuals with COVID-19 who've come here uh, domestically, and this reflects individuals from New York and some other states. If you have traveled to Florida from an international destination or from the hotspots in the United States, when you get here or have been here for the past 14 days, uh, we, we ask you to avoid being in the public, avoid the elderly, watch for your symptoms for 14 days, and if you become ill, self-isolate at that point. We have to emphasize that everybody needs to continue to protect yourself. Avoid being around people who are ill. If you're sick, don't go to work. And always be sure to wash your hands frequently. Practice social distancing, which means when you're in lines with other people and other situations, try to give yourself three to six feet between the person next to you. If you want to avoid getting COVID, avoid crowds. The problem here is that these are just requests and suggestions. The governor doesn't have the authority to impose any sort of travel limits on people from other states or to ban mass gatherings of people. Most people want to do the right thing. I mean, we're not getting um, really a lot of, of blowback when we're putting out guidance uh, with respect to the large crowds, because I think people get it um, that if you take some of these measures now and you're doing it in a way that, that's, that's calm and reasonable and sensible, um, then we have a better opportunity to get back to normal. In terms of prohibiting people coming into the state, I think I have probably very limited powers to do that. I mean, quite frankly, we're a, we're a federal system. We're a country. Um, people come in. I, I'll have people tell me just in normal course of business, hey, we have all these people moving in. Do we have too many people moving in the state? I can't really prevent that. So I know we've sp I'm speaking with the administration. We, we do are concerned about the domestic flights. But at the end of the day, someone wants to get in their car and, and, and come to Florida. It's going to be hard for us. Um, you know, to seal off the state from other states um, in, in the United States. That's just the nature of, of, how the, of how the country works. You've probably heard all the stories about hoarding toilet paper and cleaning supplies, but don't let that stop you from stocking up. Florida Emergency Management Director Jared Moskowitz says this isn't like a hurricane because the supply chain has not been affected yet and shelves are being restocked. I've been in touch with Publix and Walmart and Amazon. We are not seeing supply issues. Yes, if you go to the store, antibacterial toilet paper are hard to get. But unlike in a hurricane where we're not going to be able to resupply right away, resupply is not an issue. There are no supply chain issues at this time. We are talking to them about contingency plans if uh, workforce issues uh, become, uh, become a problem. Uh, please get supplies. Uh, lots of people are going out getting supplies. Continue to do that. That's just good planning. Make sure that you have supplies, that you have food and you have water uh, in your house. Go do that uh, now. Governor DeSantis says the bottom line is that we all have a job to do here. And job number one is to take care of yourself. The message is particularly for folks 
um, who are elderly, uh, who are frail, or who have a significant underlying medical condition is um, just avoid crowds. I mean, I think that's the number one thing uh, if you're in that danger zone, avoiding crowds. I know CMS's guidance, so, you know, we've, we've put out guidance about limiting these big events. CMS recommend, or excuse me, uh, CDC recommends 250 people um, or under only. Um, but I would just say, you know, if you're someone in that, in that vulnerable population, uh, just steer clear crowds entirely for, for the time being, because uh, that's where probably you're going to be most at risk. Amidst all the fear and trepidation about coronavirus, there is some good news to pass along today. The legislature has a new budget, and Senate Appropriations Committee Chairman Rob Bradley says they've socked away an extra $300 million in reserves to help deal with any economic fallout from the virus. We were very aggressive. Uh, in reserves. We've always said that we were going to be aggressive about our reserves. We were extra aggressive this year and uh, did over $1.3 billion uh, in reserves on top of the Budget Stabilization Fund and the Lawton Childs money. So we're at $3.8 billion of reserves. Uh, we are prepared uh, and, and when it comes to dealing with any potential revenue um, downturns because of what's happening uh, with the coronavirus. I think that's a responsible approach. That's the approach that we took. Lawmakers found that $300 million for reserves by reducing the number of tax breaks in the new budget. They also reduced the amount of money set aside for teacher pay raises. But Bradley says there is still enough money to reach the governor's goal of raising teacher pay to a minimum of $47,500 per year. Well, almost. We have $400 million to raise the minimum salaries of teachers across the state of Florida, and we're going to get um, very close to an average of $47.5 um, for the minimum salary. We're going to also have $100 million set aside exclusively for veteran teachers. Uh, I think that's an appropriate balance uh, so that we, you know, we had some comments uh, as this went through the process about uh, compression issues. Uh, that's a way to uh, address compression issues and to get more money uh, in the pockets of our teachers. Um, we talked about this being the year of the teacher. Uh, it, it is the year of the teacher. And, you know, promise made, promise kept. Do you expect all you. districts to, get, to be able to get to that 47.5? I think that uh, some districts will get closer than others, but the overall average is going to be very close to uh, the governor's goal. State workers will be getting a 3% across-the-board pay raise, first time that's happened in years, and Bradley says prison guards will get even more. If you're a correctional officer in the state of Florida, you're going to get the 3% raise that every state employee is going to receive, and then on top of that, there are going to be pay enhancements, consider, you know, taking into consideration how long you've been in service to the state of Florida in that job. We, we made it a priority, the Senate and the House, to be realistic about where the DOC was and what do we need to do to make it better? And uh, one of the things we kept hearing was retention is a problem, that we need to pay our correctional officers more. So we were very aggressive about increasing correctional officer, officer pay. And then we also were very aggressive about the overall number of dollars that went to the DOC, including the, uh, the mental health facility in Lake County, uh, where we are finally tackling a problem that is long overdue to tackle and you know, we talk about this litigation expense. We, we get in these litigations uh, over, you know, not providing perhaps the best um, care to these uh, DOC uh, inmates. And rather than pay lawyers and litigate these things, let's just fix the underlying problems. And that's what we're doing. 
Technically, the Florida legislature is still in session right now, but almost all of them are at home for an extended weekend and the primary on Tuesday. They'll return to the Capitol Wednesday or Thursday to vote on the new budget. Now, they cannot vote before then because state law imposes a 72-hour cooling-off period between the time the budget deal is sealed and lawmakers can vote. In theory, this gives rank-and-file lawmakers who were not involved in negotiations a chance to read the budget before they actually have to vote. Next up on the Sunrise interview, we talk with Senator Jeff Brandis about the budget compromise reached over the weekend, the legislature's response to coronavirus, and the failure of criminal justice reform in the session of 2020. This is Sunrise from Florida Politics. We all know that guy who says he knew Trump was going to win long before election night. Had he known about Predict It, he could have put his money where his mouth was and made a little extra cash in the process. Predicted is like the stock market for politics. You can buy and sell shares in future events and elections, both foreign and domestic. During the 2018 midterms, Predicted beat other national pollsters like Nate Silver in election night predictions, and it wasn't even close. It's easy and only costs a few bucks to get started. Our listeners can get a special introductory offer by visiting predictit.org slash promo slash F-L-A-P-O-L. Welcome back to Sunrise. Our guest today is Senator Jeff Brandis of St. Petersburg. He's the vice chairman of the Criminal Justice Committee in the Senate and chairman of the Budget Subcommittee that handles transportation, tourism, and economic development. He's had a very long session, but it's almost over. Well, all that's left now is to vote on the budget. So we've got to vote on the implementing bill, the conforming bills, and, and the overall budget itself. Now you're talking, That'll probably be later this week. You're talking $92 billion on this, some winners and losers from the budget. What are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, uh, there's a lot of winners in a $92 billion budget. Obviously, teacher pay raises was a major issue. The environment, uh, those are the key kind of takeaways from this year's budget. Uh, and then overall state salaries uh, for 3% pay increase for, for state workers. I think all of those were very positive. Are there any other issues that can still be done, or is the extension specific just to the budget? It's pretty much specific just to the budget. And sentencing reform, that was one of your big issues during the session, and that fell through at the last minute. What exactly happened there? It's been one of the big issues for the, next, the last four, four or five years. Really, it's an area that I've, I've been working on for almost, uh, for almost five years now, and it's, it's by far the hardest area of public policy in Florida to work on is criminal justice and prison reform. But we've made some real strides. Uh, this year, we've, we're putting much more focus on inmate idleness and trying to get them active, trying to get them educated while they're in per, in, incarcerated. About a third of Florida's inmates are, are functionally illiterate. So just getting them to read, getting more teachers engaged, uh, those are all very positive things that I've been working on in the prison system. So really, we've been very successful in diversion. Florida really is becoming a leader in prison diversion wherever possible. That's really positive. I think we're trying to improve the, the incarceration uh, the, the time period while people are incarcerated so that they're active, engaged, and leaving better than we get them, which is not where we were three or four years ago. But I think in a couple of years, we're going to be able to say these people are, are getting an education while they're incarcerated, they're active, they're engaged, and they're going to leave with skills ready to go back into the workforce and ready to, to reenter society and be productive members of society. So those are really the things we've been focused on. And, and while, you know, in criminal justice reform, it's incremental wins. It's a game of first downs. And so we're, we're, while we've thrown some big ideas out there, we've made some incremental progress this year. Now, as my understanding is, somewhere in the neighborhood of half a dozen bills died in Jamie Grant's committee over in the House, all sentencing reform bills. What was going on there? Well, I think the challenges right now in the Florida House is there needs to be a champion that rises up in the criminal justice space and that really begins to understand and push for criminal justice reform, and mainly in the majority party. 
The minority party has a number of people who are going out, touring facilities, bringing bold ideas to the table. But, the, but we need a champion in the majority party, and that, that really needs uh, – it needs a speaker or a Senate president um, or a governor that's going to step up and say, this is going to be my next big issue. And I know that I'm going to get some pushback from this because people are going to think that this, is, uh, that this is not exactly the path we should be going on. But honestly, smart-on-crime policies have shown to work in other states, and they're going to work here in Florida. We just have to have the courage to implement them. And so I think that's really what it takes. It takes leadership. I mean, look how hard it took and how many years it took for us to get independent practice for nurse practitioners in Florida. And finally, a speaker steps up and says, I'm willing to burn the ships. I'm willing to do what it takes to get this done. And Jose Oliva did that. And when we finally get a speaker or a Senate president or, frankly, a governor that will step up and add it to their state of the state speech or stand on the floor of the House or the Senate and make this part of the initiative that they want to work on, these are all people of faith, and their faith tells them that it's how we treat the least of these. And that, to me, is how you measure a state. It's not how you treat the wealthiest of them. It's how you treat those who are incarcerated and ensuring that, that the, the justice is truly a sentence that meets the, the – that, that that's not too short nor too long, because sentences that are just as too long are just as unjust as sentences that are too short. And so how do we have the right justice system? And that's something that we're working towards. But I think that's what ultimately you need. You need champions to step up. I'm stepping up. Uh, we have a number of members of the Florida Senate that are taking on this tough issue. But we need leadership outside of just the Senate. Now, as, as long as we're talking corrections, the, the corrections officers did get their pay raise, a bump above and beyond the 3% that state employees are getting. Was there anything for prison medical, though? I know that was one of the concerns toward the closing days of the session where people were saying, you know, the inmates are really getting rotten health and they're dying because of it. Well, I think prison medical is one of the bigger issues uh, in the state correction system that really nobody has, has talked about in a long time. We have got, it's gotten so bad that we have essentially went out for bid a couple of years ago and we only had one company bid. And when they bid, they only bid on a cost-plus basis. So it's something we looked at last year and studied. One of the things we wanted to do this year is that we've seen some other states like Texas, Ohio, where their university systems actually end up running the health care of their corrections facilities. We think that's a really interesting model. We tried to put some money towards exploring that model. We're going to continue to push for us to explore that model. But we think maybe the university model for our healthcare system is better. It could be a better way to do it. Florida spends almost $450 million a year in just providing its inmate health care because we have 100,000 inmates. And so for us, it's really looking at what's the most efficient, effective way. And I think uh, creating residency slots inside the correction system, I think that using you, the use of telemedicine in order to lower our costs um, but also provide superior care for those incarcerated, I think is really something that, that uh, I'm looking forward to. There was also a dispute between the House and the Senate over uh, the percentage of THC in cannabis, medical marijuana. Uh, the House was trying to put in a 10% limit. The Senate was standing against that. How did that turn out? It turned out that the Senate was able to hold the line, and uh, the Department of Bill Health passed without that provision in it. Uh, I think that's very positive. I think ultimately this is a question between doctors and patients, and we should allow that conversation to be between a doctor and a patient relationship and not let's get the government out of the way. We don't need big, more big government policies in medical cannabis in Florida. We've already created this disastrous vertical integration system. The last thing we need to do is tinker with the THC levels. If you had to slap a grade on the 2020 session, how do you think lawmakers did? I think it was a solid B. I mean, look, I think, I think overall some big things – made it through. I think, uh, I think we're ultimately going to have to uh, come back and look at some of the other questions like our budget that we're going to have to address. 
because of corona and we're not knowing how that's ultimately going to play out. I think that's one of the things that we've got to continue to work on is trying to figure out what um, – what, what does this really mean? If Disney's closed for a month or, or more or a month, more than a month, it's going to have a, a, a meaningful impact on the, the revenues of the state, and we're probably going to find ourselves back in special session, uh, giving a haircut to some of the entities that we funded this year. You are a cheerful person, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you got to look at the bright side of life, right? <laughs> Always look at the bright side of life. I think, I think Monty Python is the one that taught us that. That's it. All right. And anything else you want to throw in, Senator? Well, look, I think overall it was a great session. I'm excited about some of the issues we're working on. The, one of the big challenges that I don't think we addressed this year that we've got to come back and address next year is the rising homeowner insurance price, is, 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 rising homeowner insurance costs. Uh, it's one of the issues that was left on the table in the Florida Senate and, frankly, needs to be addressed. We have just an, a huge uptick in litigation in the property insurance space right now. We've got to address that, or you're going to see uh, homeowners insurance rates for seniors and for everybody else rise, you know, 50% maybe over the next year, and then could be as, as much as double over the next two or three years. We've got to get a handle on this. And if you talk to the insurance industry, you really hear that they don't have this problem around the country like they have in Florida, and we've got to get that under control. This is really a backdoor tax on Floridians, and it's something that, that the legislature needs to get its arms around and have the courage to face. Terrific. Thank you so much for your time, Senator. My pleasure. Looking forward to talking to you soon. Your calendar of political events? Well, at 10 o'clock this morning, the Florida Department of Economic Opportunity will release the January unemployment figures. December's rate was the lowest since they adopted the current method of calculating the jobless rate back in the 70s. And members of the Broward County Legislative Delegation are scheduled to meet with representatives of the Department of Health, Cities, and Hospital Districts to discuss the coronavirus, a.k.a. COVID-19. The meeting starts at 3 in Hollywood, followed by a news conference when they're done. And it's time once again for the adventures of Florida Man, who wants to fight the spread of coronavirus by spreading the virus itself, and the Florida couple working to flatten the curve. A Florida man has come up with a novel way to deal with COVID-19. Miami Beach City Commissioner Ricky Ariola is suggesting the idea of deliberately infecting first responders so they can develop antibodies to the illness. He calls it dangerous but bold and suggested cops, firefighters, and EMTs would be taking one for the team. The commissioner says it might make sense to expose willing first responders to the virus in a controlled setting with medical supervision. And if that happens, he says he'll volunteer too. One complication, well, as of now, the scientific community has no decisive answer as to whether people exposed to coronavirus actually develop an immunity. And despite all those warnings about social distancing during the outbreak, police say a Florida man and a Florida woman decided to have sex in public outside a hospital in St. Petersburg. The arrest report says 45-year-old Anne-Marie Tucker and 37-year-old Albert Singletary were exposing their sexual organs in plain view of the public as they did their impression of the beast with two backs. They're charged with exposure of sexual organs and trespassing. Yep, their love nest was right next to a no-trespassing sign. That's it for today's episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow on Primary Day as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.